Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. George Hoare is in London. Phil Cunliffe is in Canterbury, all as per usual. Hello, guys. How's it going? Very well. Good. Hey, good. I'm Excellent. Good. Uh, we amped to talk about these long-running protests in Hong Kong. Very much yes. so. So for those who haven't been following this at all or have been living under a rock, these protests have been going for about four months now. Uh, show no sign of abating. And uh, I'm just looking at the latest news. Today's the 24th of September. Uh, the latest headlines is that there's outrage over the police beating of a protester. But equally, just before this, there was outrage over uh, protesters beating up mainland Chinese or people that they thought were spies from the mainland. So there's a lot of kind of uh, tit for tat sort of videos, lots of misinformation. And at the same time, a lot of confusion over what these protests actually represent. Um, I saw that billionaire Li Ka-shing uh, in a bro- video broadcast on local TV described these protests as the worst catastrophe since World War II, which might be overstating it slightly. Um, the really big news is Moody downgrades Hong Kong's outlook to negative, uh, which for a major financial center is kind of a big deal. The protests themselves seem to be well, present themselves as a fight between democracy and authoritarianism, but others argue that it's actually motivated by an inequality, uh, concerned by civil rights, or simply by a sort of Hong Kong snobbishness with regard to the mainland. Uh, and there's also kind of dark sides from what I can tell too. I mean, guys, have you noticed some of these, what, you know, what we might see as sort of dark sides of these protests, stuff that we might not want to fully endorse? No, uh, I mean, look, I mean, there is, you know, I don't, dark side, I think is, um, is, much too strong um and you see i mean suddenly you hear the reports of the protesters um chanting god save the queen and flying british era colonial flags and so on but i mean that's also very put on for the for the british press right so i mean at least that's the way in which it's framed here i don't mean that the protesters are doing that for the british press but at least in britain it's very clearly um framed in such a way that it speaks to, um, it's intended to flatter Britain from afar. So, and given the sheer scale of the numbers involved, if the fact that some Daily Mail reporter happens to stumble across some people with um, colonial flags, I'm not going to leap to assume it characterizes the whole movement, Mm. which is why I'm interested to see what an expert on the ground has to say. Yeah, I think it's very apparent that we're a long way away from what's happening and that most of the media coverage basically can't be believed at all. Obviously, from the British point of view, people are importing a whole a whole wagon load of, of, of nostalgia um, for the colonial past. I mean, this is right up until, you know, the, the mid-90s. I think people are looking back on the, the period of, of Cool Britannia and thinking, oh, if only we still had you know blair uh, didn't you know blair in the in at number 10 or and or oasis and or hong kong then things things would be fine um so yeah i think it it is important to get through some of the um some of the smoke and mirrors around it because it seems virtually impossible to to sort of believe a lot of the the mainstream media framing of this more so than than other um, protest movements. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and the same goes, I guess, for reading the Chinese media coverage on this as well. Consequently, uh, I dialed up Toby Carroll, who's an associate professor at City University of Hong Kong, to talk about this. He's at the Department of Asian Studies there. He focuses on the political economy of development in the region. 
Actually, if you want to check out a forthcoming book of his co-edited with a previous guest, Lee Jones, as well as Shahar Harmari, uh, it's called The Political Economy of Southeast Asia, Politics and Uneven Development Under Hyperglobalization. That's the one to check out if you're interested in the political economy of the region. So here I am talking to Toby Carroll. I hope that the interview is Hong Kong quality. That's a phrase that they have. So when I was living in Shanghai, you would say, if something was very good, you'd say Hong Kong quality. We're just going to dive right in, actually. Where we're going to start is, who are the protesters? I mean, all the reporting has been quite clear that it is generally young people, and it's a generation of young people who've grown up after the handover. Um, So who are they? What is their consciousness? What is their identity? If you give us a kind of summation, and we're going to drill deeper into these questions uh, in a little bit afterwards. Sure. So uh, I I guess um, we need to sort of start with the... um the extradition bill here. So the extradition bill was uh, a bill that was introduced um, uh, into into the LegCo uh, and which has triggered off all the unrest here. Um, And that was ostensibly introduced um, to tackle an immediate issue, which was uh, a young Hong Kong couple had traveled to Taiwan and uh, there are allegations that the young man uh, in the couple had murdered his girlfriend while on holiday um, and returned to Hong Kong and uh, nothing could be done about this because there was no existing extradition arrangements between Hong Kong and Taiwan. Um, but of course, um, people immediately uh, recognised that the extradition bill would also permit uh, uh, you know, extraditing people not just to Taiwan but also uh, back to, to mainland China. And so it was yet another sort of instance of people feeling as though uh, autonomy and the uh, one country, two systems uh, arrangement was being compromised. Um, And there was an immediate sort of backlash to that. And and this sort of follows on the back of um, years actually of uh, efforts by the government that have have, um, uh, upset upset people and led to unrest, uh, including attempts to change the education uh, curriculum um, and and many other uh, sorts of uh, you know also I mean the, the most recent one 2014 was of course about choosing the chief executive the, the person at the top of the administrative apparatus here in Hong Kong um, but this particular round kicked off with with that series of events and um, and initially when we come to the question of who the protesters were or who they are um, it's evolved I think over time so. You, it's important to distinguish here between, um, you know, I think there there is obviously a lot of broad-based opposition to the extradition bill, uh, to now to the government um, and the police as an instrument of the government, um, uh, and also, of course, to mainland China. Um, you know, you can't underestimate really the hostility that lots of Hong Kongers feel towards um uh, to the mainland, and we can talk about that in, in the podcast um, later on. Um, but you know, th- this is how it sort of um, kicked off. And you know, the I guess the originally we started with these big marches. I actually went to the, the first one. I, I think it was in early June. Two million people on the streets, and that was a broad cross section of society. You had young people. You had old people. Um, you had middle-aged people, uh, clearly professionals, 
um, people working in all sorts of service jobs and uh, so on. Um, it was a real broad cross-section of society. We're talking about, you know, an estimate of 2 million people in a city of seven and a half or however many million people. It's, mm. it's a big chunk of the population. Um, we've also, of course, since then uh, had uh, marches that have been, uh, you know, close. I mean, in the millions, certainly, uh, and, and the hundreds of thousands. Um, but the most recent unrest is a, is a much more, involves a much more, um, or a much smaller group, I guess. Um, and some of them are very active, um, of course, very angry, as I'm sure you've seen from the signs on the street. Um, and they are overwhelmingly young. Um, they are, you know, I would, I mean, you, there's a bit of a split there in, insofar as you have people who are um, school students, uh, but also post, um, you know, tertiary education, young adults as well. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a mix. And I would say the hardened uh, group that is now the most visible uh, representation of the protesters uh, falls into this uh, category of being young, 20-something, uh, you know, uh, sometimes with degrees uh, sort of category, I guess. Right. So actually on that, maybe you could give us a, a sort of tour of the main protest organizations as a way of getting started in, in understanding who these protesters are? It's, uh, I mean, some of the groups, it, it, yeah, it's a mix. And uh, I mean, some have, know, some have talk- names like Young Spiration, which um, I was surprised to discover wasn't like a, a 90s music, uh, 90s music channel or something, or, or a really yeah. terrible NGO or something. <laughs> but, I was, but I was happy to discover it's like a, it's kind of more right wing, right? Which was just was nice to discover. Um, I was happy that yeah, the so, left didn't so, have a I mean, like that. that. Well, well, that's the that's the interesting thing. I mean, you know, I think this also speaks to, you know, over the last sort of six weeks or so, I guess I've been looking at the coverage of um, the situation here in the international uh, sort of. Press and, and then also in, in sort of left outlets, and I've noticed that there's sort of been a diminished interest in Hong Kong in sort of left outlets, and I'm not surprised <laughs> yeah. actually because I think they've actually picked up on the fact that um, some of these elements are distinctly reactionary, and they're they're not, um, you know, they're, they're not uh, progressive in a redistributive sense, um, or yet or they have yet to articulate that um, there are. You know, I mean, in some cases, quite xenophobic elements. Um, so, you know, it's it's um, you know the question of what these different groups believe in is a, is an interesting one. I mean, there's a, there's the there are the five demands, you know, including retracting the extradition bill, and uh, you know, many of the demands are sort of associated with what's happened afterwards, like um, you know, releasing the people who've been arrested. There's now been you know, uh, well over a thousand people arrested and so on mm. and so forth. Um, but in terms of getting a sense of how they um, how they view, uh, you know, addressing what they think uh, or what they what they identify as problems and how they address how they look at, think about addressing these problems, um, you know, it, it can often be a, a little a little bit concerning actually. So, um, you know, the the enemy has is undoubtedly China. And it's undoubtedly, um, you know, the the government as a transmission belt for for the for the mainland and for Beijing in particular. Um, and there's sort of no overt recognition of the this rather symbiotic relationship between the political and economic elite here. Um, you know, there's very little articulation. You know, there's very little focus on 
the, the quite staggering uh, social and political uh, troubles that, that Hong Kong has faced for a long, long time. Um, and, and, how, and there's very little understanding of how those have come into being. So, you know, and part of that is bundled up, I think, with, um, you know, uh, Hong Kong's history in terms of, um, you know, how it got relatively rich compared to uh, sort of many surrounding regions, I guess, certainly in the, the 70s and the 80s. Um, and the sort of myth that went along, of course, with, um, with that. Also, the legacy of the stories told about the Cultural Revolution and, and earlier periods in the mainland, which many sort of parents and certainly grandparents were, were running from uh, when they came to Hong Kong. So um, actually... Like, I mean, I was going to say, let's put a pin on that, put a pin in that. But actually, before speaking a little bit more in depth about uh, the protests, their modes of organization and so on, uh, why don't we actually take this opportunity, given that you've already mentioned it, to to do the kind of backdrop stuff to get a better understanding of Hong Kong's relationship to China and also Hong Kongers relationships to how they see the mainland and how they see mainlanders. Um, so maybe yeah, sure. start just to start off, give it a little bit of a potted history about how, how Hong Kong came to be the Hong Kong that we know today. Yeah, well, I mean, the, you know, the way I see Hong Kong and and how it is the Hong Kong that we experience today, uh, I think is, um, you know, I mean, look, I had the fortune of my, my parents used to do business here in the 1980s. So I came here as a little kid um, and walked through factories in Quintong you know, garment factories in Quintong and, and saw that side of Hong Kong when it was firmly in its so-called, and I'm using quote marks here, golden age. Um, you know, I mean, not to not to sugarcoat it. I mean, the, the factory conditions were, were Dickensian to say the least. Uh, mm. You know, I mean, shuttering uh, buildings that were sort of heaving under the, the industrial equipment um, and, and really quite confronting conditions. Um, but that was also a period in which, you know, quite a lot of people... Um, made good. They, they did well out of it. I mean, my uh, my partner, her, her, you know, I think her her story is sort of, or her family story is sort of indicative of this. I mean, um, her, her dad was a small business guy who sold, you know, plastic bags um, and originally sort of delivered them on bicycles and over time was able to buy his own house and, and they now live what I would call a firmly comfortable by Hong Kong standards, middle-class uh, lifestyle. Um, and, you know, there are, there are lots of examples of that. But, of course, there's also the story looming large of, of the tycoons, like people like uh, Lee Ka-shing, who, you know, starts out selling silk or plastic flowers. I can't remember exactly which one. Um, and, you know, he's, he's affectionately known here as Superman. Um, he's, you know, uh, he's got his fingers in all sorts of pies, so, so of his uh, uh, you know, sons and so on, the telecommunications sector, um, in, you know, retail services sectors and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and these guys, of course, did, did very well during this period and uh, are celebrated and, and sort of accorded automatic reverence, actually. Um, and, you know, uh, the, in some ways it's sort of, uh, it's a bit like the, uh, I think, a version of what you see in the US, you know, this, this notion that actually throughout the golden age, you know, a bit of hard work and, and, and thrift, could you know uh, you did actually lead lead to success in some cases that pull yourself up by the bootstraps uh, individualism is, is certainly very strong here as it was in the US um, and you know but of course the broader story is Hong Kong's 
situation within the global reorganization of production. I mean, it was an important site of manufacturing uh, for Japanese manufacturers in the in the you know 60s and 70s and 80s. You can still see the old fading uh, Yashica adverts on buildings that are <laughs> decaying into the ground. So in that period, what, what attracted uh, foreign interests in, in setting up manufacturing in Hong Kong? Well, I mean, relatively cheap labor, you know, of course. Um, it was, you know, it is a, a, a free, free port, free, free market. So it was, um, you know, I mean, historically, of course, the harbor was identified as, a, as a, an important uh, geographical feature. And in many ways, it, you know, a bit like, I guess, Singapore um, sort of leveraged off that and, and being, a, a, you know, entrepot or, or, you know, a, that sort of economy, I guess. Um, but, you know, things change. Then it becomes sort of a, a crucial interface for, for China and the outside world as China's opening up from the late 70s, early 80s on. Um, and uh, and that, that, that is super important. Um, it grows as a financial centre. Uh, on the back of its, uh, you know, extremely laissez-faire arrangement to to uh, to capital, um, and uh, you know, I mean, relatively, it looks it looked it looked rosy, certainly compared to what was across the border and what a lot of people had run from, um, and you know, on the back of that, I think you know, up until I guess the last couple of months, you know, and this it's not unique to Hong Kong. Uh, you know, I certainly I lived in Singapore for six years, and there's a similar sort of uh, feature to, to Singapore. But relative to the the surrounding situations and, and the gains that these places made, you know, on the back of that, you did see this uh, quite incredible at times smugness that would uh, um, that, that would reveal itself. You know, I mean, mm. Hong Kong, um, you know, loves to talk about, you know, up until recently, of course, uh, loves to talk about. Uh, how it does in terms of rankings, whether it's education rankings, healthcare rankings, uh, ease of doing business. It's you know it's always done very well on the on the World Bank uh, ease of doing business uh, measures. Um, you know people like Milton Friedman famously came here in the 80s and got excited about the market activity and and, right. and so on and so forth. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I mean, I think you, you can even see, at least this is my understanding, that even some of the protesters, certain wings of the protest, have taken up that sort of, those sort of smug yeah. positionings, like we, you know, absolutely. we are Hong Kong. Absolutely. Are... I, I mean, I, I hate to say it, because, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm supporting the government at all. The government has been, we can talk about the government, I think, as a standalone subject in a moment, but um, it's absolutely true. And pushing past those myths. I mean, the other, the, the really interesting thing is, I mean, it's actually deeply contradictory for many of them to adopt that position because um, quite a lot of them actually face very bleak prospects. I mean, you know, we're talking gig economy jobs, um, you know, regardless of whether you have a, a, a high degree or not, you're facing diminished social mobility. I mean, one, you know, th th these figures have been pushed around for a while, but one figure I found the other day uh, was actually in the SCMP. I think it was a renewed version of it even more recently, um, was saying that, you know, starting salaries for graduates in 1987 were around 21, 21 or 22,000 Hong Kong dollars. Now they're 14. Wow. Um, you know, so you've had a huge expansion, of course, in terms of the numbers of people going to university. But even so, if you look at the massive increase in property prices, um, in the cost of living, I mean, you know, the, the, the average cost of... 
of renting a place here is just phenomenal. Um, so that really puts it into quite a, you know, uh, right. You know, gives you an idea of what's going on. So 1987, 22,000, uh, you know, 2019, we're talking 14. Yeah. It seems um, to suffer from the same problems that we see elsewhere of, uh, educated, you know, people who would expect to be having professional jobs and a certain standard of living, feeling downwardly mobile, you know, pressed by, especially by absolutely. housing costs. Look, look, you saw this in Singapore as well. I mean, I, just as I was leaving Singapore in 2013, I think it was, I mean, you know, the, the PAP was facing a challenging election and Alicia and Lung had famously come out and said, well, you know, rather than go to university, uh, student, you know, graduates, uh, sorry, student, uh, young people should think about going and opening up a hawker store, you know, and he was, of course, referring to opening, uh, you know, uh, a little stall in one of the, uh, uh, the, the food courts that you find in, in Singapore where yeah. you can buy a meal for $3.50 or $4 a pop um, and so on. Uh, of course, you know, you're still facing the reality that, you know, you, you maybe you want to go and buy a house in, uh, in Singapore's housing market, which is, of course, is controlled way more than here, which makes it a different situation. But even so, people found it phenomenally offensive. I mean, you know, the idea that this was going to be some sort of uh, way out of a situation uh, that was not of their making, it's just, you know, uh, was a little bit too much to take. So before we jump forward again to the the protests and uh, some of the more immediate causes uh, and the positioning of different groups with regard to the protests, I wanted to ask a little bit more about the political regime. Uh, And I mean, my understanding is that upon the British exit, the British then insisted on a more democratic regime than the British used to operate uh, as a sort of condition, as it were, of, of, of their handover. Yeah, well, I mean, as we all know, colonialism was no uh, liberal, you know, paradise. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the, the system here also has, you know, uh, I mean, elements of, of, you know, democratic elements, but also quite guildist and colonial elements, uh, you know, associated with it. So you still have these functional constituencies, which are, you know, uh, essentially, you know, guild-like, uh, sector-oriented, industry-oriented uh, groups that have a position in the uh, in the uh, legislative council here. Um, and it's it's not one man, and, one vote, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, no, it's not, not at all. So it's it's divvied up between, uh, yeah, different different arrangements, even within the legislative council. So you know, these guys have a a, a you know, uh, I mean, an, an a say within um, within government that is, uh, you know, sort of, I don't know, that often crowds out the everyday citizen. That they're overwhelmingly uh, pro Beijing in their orientation, um, but you know, they are sort of defined on the basis of their particular sector that they they are representing. So it's uh, it's, so, it's, so, it's so, sorry to so interrupt. That sorry, yeah. Yep. I mean, it's, it's interesting just because you have a situation in Hong Kong where you have a much greater degree of civil liberties than in um, than in Ch- mainland China, but but also just in, in, in general terms. But but at the same time, you obviously have a much restricted popular sovereignty. I mean, you don't really have popular right. sovereignty. And I'm sorry, I just wanted to, to kind of tease this. It, it hmm. gives, uh, you know, it makes sense that the extradition treaty would be such a, a, a lightning rod for protest because it would be seen to be a challenge to civil liberties. But the protests seem to have gone beyond that in the demands towards more democratic demands. 
But at the same time, yeah. there's this element of colonial nostalgia, which it looks back to a period which yeah. was clearly not democratic. So it's 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 not it's not really clear what what exactly the positioning is. Oh, that's very true. I mean, we've had colonial flags being flown by the protesters, along with uh, British flags, American flags, pictures of Trump riding on tanks, and all sorts of stuff. Um, I mean, in some ways, you know, it's interesting going back to 2014, which is very much about, you know. I mean, we keep, they keep talking about universal suffrage here, but overwhelmingly the focus in terms of political uh, representation is on choosing the chief executive. So it's still this very much, very much a, I mean, depending on how you want to see it, a, a CEO company sort of notion of how uh, things work. Well, mm. some people have said it's suggested it's, it's a more traditional uh, representation, particular to this neck of the woods, I guess. But... Um, you know, it's the, the idea that if you get to choose the boss, um, you know, things can be, you know, made made better. Um, and, you know, so actually the functional constituencies that I mentioned before have come in for very little attention whatsoever, certainly in terms of understanding colonial rule and what it was really about, both here and elsewhere, uh, there seems to be almost no uh, serious unpacking of that whatsoever. Um, you know, it's it's more a, a sort of connection between um, you know the, the myth of what Hong Kong was and uh, and and sort of saying you know it was, it was suggesting it was vastly preferable to what what you have now. I mean, the you know the extradition uh, side of things I think became more pointed because a couple of things. You know, first of all, we had these book uh, sellers who were kidnapped here. Um, and, you know, uh, they'd been writing and publishing these uh, books, you know, often based around fictionalised versions or stories relating to party officials and so on. I mean, it's pretty low-quality sort of stuff, I think. But, you know... It's like I negative mean, fanfic, kind of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there was, there was that. Then we also had uh, some uh, prominent, you know, uh, at least one that I can remember of a prominent uh, mainland businessman who was taken outside of IFC here um, and, and spirited back to the mainland, I think. Um, so, and, and I think, you know, so in terms of concerns about civil liberties and and how, um, you know, whether or not you could speak your mind and, and, uh, and not be concerned about uh, being taken across the border, you know, th th these are real concerns, I guess. Um, but the, in terms of, you know, the focus on democracy, it has, you know, really been a focus on choosing the chief executive without Beijing vetting the candidates in the first place, uh, which is what happens. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a fairly narrow uh, demand in terms of uh, you know, improving the, the representation side of things. There's been very little to sort of describe or explain why um, that would be good, short of, you know, uh, explaining that um, China would no longer have as much influence over Hong Kong. So it's not sort of like we want to choose the boss so the boss can look out for us in a material sense or improve public housing um, or, you know, infrastructure or uh, focus on creating some opportunities in the economy beyond gig, gig economy jobs. Uh, it's, it's, there hasn't been that, that, that element to it. Uh, it's been a very sort of immediate, we want to be able to choose the boss um, sort of position, um, coupled with this, of course, um, you know, uh, very creative uh, interpretation of what colonialism was about. I mean, look, it was a golden age period for Hong Kong, so I think I guess they conflate that with 
um, colonialism, but in terms of representation and so forth, it's, it's a, a little unfortunate. Yeah, to say the least. So the question of inequality is one which is not so widely discussed in, in mainstream reporting of Hong Kong. And for, for good reason, I guess, in, in the sense that the demands don't cons- don't really touch on these material aspects. Um, and yeah. they mainly touch on questions of civil liberties and, and some democratic demands, as, as you've just said, which are relatively yeah. limited democratic demands. How much do you think a question like inequality... Uh, questions like housing costs are a cause of the protests, even if they don't find their way into into the demands, into the kind of political consciousness of uh, sure. of the protests. I mean, you know, I don't want to sound uh, patronising at all, but I mean, I, I see them as an underlying, as the driver, essentially. And I, and I think, you know, they are the product of um, a, a sort of, you know, the, the combination of a, a political and economic elite that have really... Uh, work things out in their own interests very nicely and given very little uh, time to uh, concerns that have been boiling below. You know, I mean, it, are you, I mean, look, there's, there's been a powder keg building here for years. Anyone who knows the place and, and walks around suburbs beyond, uh, you know, the downtown areas. I mean, even the downtown areas in some cases, are, I don't know if you've been to Hong Kong recently, but, you know, they can be confronting in places. But certainly when you get out to places like, um, you know, Fo Tan or Sham Shui Po or, you know, uh, even Quintong, New Orleans, you know, you see some pretty uh, incredible uh, scenes in terms of, you know, urban decay um, and, you know, old people struggling to, um, you know, collect cardboard and all sorts of stuff uh, and, and what have you. Unfortunately, if you bring those issues up here, you are immediately accused of doing what the mainland does, doing what Beijing does, which is making it about economic issues. So there's actually an automatic <laughs> resistance to making it about economic issues. That's fascinating. Um, which, yeah, which is kind of perplexing, but I guess fascinating from an analytical point of view. Yeah, yeah I mean, so, I mean, maybe continuing along that vein, I mean, mm. the position of, of labor, of unions uh, with regard to the protests, I mean, has been... I guess relatively, uh, relatively muted. Uh, there was the fifth of August but, general strike, which I think you probably yeah. have to put in quotation marks because it was sure. political and not economic. It wasn't led by the unions themselves. So, could you yeah. give us a little bit of a picture on on that front? Yeah, I mean, look, look, there were some uh, labor organisations and union groups like the, the the teaching education union, which you know they were very prominent in the in the early uh, big marches. And, and we had the, the, the action that you just mentioned before. Um, but it, it's become something different now. I mean, the groups that are, we're seeing each weekend who are going out and, I mean, you know, I mean, the last few weeks, the main target has been the MTR, the Mass Transit uh, Rail Corporation here, which is overwhelmingly owned by the state. Um, and it's what Hong Kongers <laughs> used to, most Hong Kongers used to get around the place. Um, and it's become a, a target. So, you know, we've had, you know, people setting fire to stations, smashing ticketing machines, smashing the gates, uh, so on and so forth, because the MTR was bundled up with, um, you know, a couple of cases where in one case they had uh, allowed police to gain access to pr- people who 
were pro who were uh, protesting and who'd made a run for the the trains and so on. Um, there were also cases where um, uh, the MTR had, or the most recent case has been um, trying, protesters wanting to get a hold of video footage, which ostensibly showed, um, you know, some people possibly being killed uh, in a particular train station in one of the protest events. And so, you know, this is these guys have been focused on targeting the MTR as a sort of arm of the state that has been assisting Beijing. <laughs> Uh, at the same time, Beijing has been critical of the MTR Corporation for allowing protesters to easily move around the, the city and, uh, and pursue their strategy of, uh, you know, uh, being like water, you know, being fluid and, and, and mobile and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of industrial organized labor backing this, that that's just not, <laughs> it's not a, I don't think it's any longer a, a big part of the story. Uh, they were certainly involved in the early protests in terms of putting up banners and, and wanting to see improvements in terms of universal suffrage and so on and so forth. But in terms of what's happened the last few weeks, uh, I don't think that's a, a big part of the story. And is that because of the union leadership, the union bureaucracy uh, is not politically inclined to do it is it because they don't have the sufficient density and strength to back the protests uh, or is it also just the rank and file or and well, indeed rank and file the, workers you, aren't interested in it yeah i think it's a bit of everything and some looks one of the you know some of the unions are, are very much pro beijing there's this there's, there's big splits in the, in the uh, organized labor side on the organized labor side of things here um but you know realistically honestly alex like uh, the idea of um you know organizing uh, for, you know, in, in order to struggle for political change and so on here, you know, based around some sort of uh, worker solidarity or worker, it's just not there, you know, I mean, I would say there's next to no class consciousness in, in Hong Kong, really. I mean, it, it mm. sounds like quite a statement, but, um, you know, the whole, you know, I mean, my, my fr Hong Kong friends will often say, look, you know, I don't know why you keep talking about Hong Kong society. There really is no Hong Kong society. Of course, at the same time, they'll talk, they'll talk about Hong Kong identity and being a Hong Konger now. But, but realistically, I think what they're talking about is the sort of solidarity that, um, you know, we associate maybe with uh, uh, social democracies and socialist countries in the, in the past and so on. Um, that, that's just not part of the collective consciousness here. That's really interesting. I think it, it, with that in mind then, I mean, could you give us, is there a way to summarize what the class background is of most of the protesters? They're obviously yeah, young, but but is it is it mixed? Is it kind of downwardly mobile middle class? Is it, I mean, what? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, it all depends, you know, I mean, how we define these things, right? So I think uh, the, in class terms, I mean, I remember like, you know, reading a famous study of Japan in the 1980s where, you know, everybody basically said they were middle or upper middle class. And of course it wasn't true. It was how they described themselves and how they wanted to see themselves and so on. Um, and I think a bit of that is the case in, in Hong Kong. So, you know, there were some uh, recent uh, news pieces, including a piece in the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago um, by uh, is it Jamil Andalini, I think, and he was sort of saying, oh, you know, well, some of the protesters are actually quite rich. I've seen them driving off in fancy cars, um, which, you know, I mean, maybe he did, but I think this is not indicative of, of the general uh, socioeconomic background of a lot of the, the protesters. Um, 
you know, a lot of the protests have happened, although there has been this strategy of, of moving around the city um, and, and uh, you know, flash mob sort of events. I mean, a lot of the protests, protests have occurred and the most fiery protests have, have occurred in some of the poorest parts of Hong Kong. It was the same for 2014. I mean, 2014, the major sit-in was downtown in Admiralty and around Central, but actually the most fiery aspects were in the, the sort of top end of Mong Kok and Prince Edward, where there was a completely different group of, uh, you know, people getting angry and they were much older, much more working class. You know, downtown was more student uh, and often school student. Uh, age uh, uh, participants and so on and so forth. Look, you know, the fact is there are a lot of people here who are struggling um, to, to make ends meet. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, or maybe not unfortunately, but often people won't admit it. I mean, it's, you know, Uber, for example, is illegal here. I'm not a huge fan of Uber, but the Hong Kong taxi service can be confronting sometimes uh, in terms of getting around the city. So every now and again, you know, you take Uber and have a conversation with some of the Uber drivers. And a lot of these guys, um, you know, have one or two degrees. They say they're working a few jobs and Uber is an extra sort of thing for them. But you get the sense that it's probably not entirely accurate. Um, you know, a lot of my Hong Kong friends, you know, who come from a mix of backgrounds, uh, the, the stories in terms of precariousness, I mean, they're just too prevalent, you know, um, the uh, you've often got three generations of one family living in a tiny flat so you know housing ownership here is uh certainly to a place like singapore uh relatively low um but even within that you have multiple generations living in tiny flats uh, you know not just obviously uh you know uh, parents and children but also grandparents and so on living in these tiny apartments i mean you know the, the way in which the property um, property developers have have gained a sort of stronghold over the city is quite phenomenal. You know, we're now talking about nano apartments that are the size of parking bays or jail cells. People were joking that it's better off to go to jail because at least you get a free meal and your your <laughs> you know your space will possibly be bigger than what you have. Right, right. Um, and it's not due to, and it's of, not due just to an absolute shortage of land or anything in Hong Kong, is my understanding. Absolutely not. I mean, that's a, that's another complete uh, you know. Uh, Completely misleading, yeah. you know, complete misconception. I mean, you know, Hong Kong, uh, actually, one, I mean, the property developers and others and, you know, uh, and property owners generally sit on large land banks. A lot of this stuff is, is grossly underutilized. So you've got these uh, massive old decaying industrial buildings doing very little. Sometimes they're partitioned up into um, these incredibly miserable coffin uh, what they call uh, coffin apartments sort of thing or coffin, uh, you know, they're just very narrow, basically enough to allow you to have a bed and, and, uh, and not much else in there. Um, so, uh, you know, some of that is illegal, but it's not policed. Um, then others are just left sort of empty uh, and so on. There's very little effort by the government to um, certainly not to embrace uh, a new taxation regime that would penalise people for un utilized property and so on and so forth the supply of property onto the market is highly uh, controlled um, and there's no like in Singapore for example if you have uh, developments that come onto the market and they don't sell within 12 months or 24 months I can't remember exactly you know th there are penalties applied by the government on those unsold apartments here there's nothing like that in fact quite the opposite so if you suggest something like that um, 
not only will the government, but not only the government, but the developers and, and many people will sort of say, oh, but, you know, if you do that, um, people will lose out, people will no longer have faith in real estate and, they'll, you know, property prices will go down and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, that, that's the, the narrative. That's the, all the, they're the sorts of narratives that, that appear time and time again whenever anyone brings up addressing these things and the, the government just, surprise, surprise, doesn't do it. It, it makes lots of money out of real estate revenues um, you know, it raises a lot of, I mean, this is the bizarre thing also. Many countries in the world struggle providing populations with basic services and, and uh, you know, uh, things that might make their material conditions better. But Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government sits on massive amounts of money, you know, last, I think, what was it, 650 or 700 billion US dollars at the last count. So, you know, it's, it's not like there's a shortage of cash there. They could do it that the uh, Public housing uh, could be expanded dramatically. You often have 10-year waiting lists to get into public housing here. Um, you know, it's it's quite surreal. And yet people are extremely reticent to sort of draw attention to the collusion between uh, political and economic elites. So they'll tackle the political ones in, in the form of the chief executive, Carrie Lam, and, and, and uh, you know, and her, you know, and associate automatically her with Beijing. But in terms of looking at how the government has looked after the economic interests here, uh, often to the detriment of the that's just that connection is not made. That, that's that's fascinating. I mean, the I guess tr- traditional kind of basic interpretation would be that if if a movement has just political demands but doesn't broach any economic ones, it tends to be a kind of middle class movement and not yeah. a, a workers' which, movement. Which I I just don't think is the case. I mean. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of the are they middle class? You know, uh, look, I think a lot of them would be um, maybe they're, they're middle class by some definition. I mean, if you look at some of the, you know, what a few years ago the Economist had its famous issue where it was saying, you know, a huge percentage of the world's population was middle class, defined right. by two dollars yeah. and twenty dollars a day or whatever. Yeah. Uh, of course, I don't subscribe to that sort of position. Here, I mean. You know, you often do have three generations of one family living a house, all looking out one way or another for each other, um, and, and pulling together to try and and uh, get by. Um, you know, they're they're probably they're not starving, but in terms of enjoying social mobility and the idea that maybe one day they could go out and buy a place of their own and uh, have a job where they weren't earning sort of minimum wage and being treated poorly by their boss uh, you know i think that's it's becoming increasingly unrealistic for many hong kongers mm, so it's relatively like low income and mainly service sector workers or absolutely i mean here it's overwhelming you know uh, you know be real estate people say they work in finance but often i mean look the top end finance jobs are largely captured by you know what they in singapore call foreign talent and and a, and a few a few locals but overwhelmingly you know it's not employing a lot of hong kongers um it's it's yeah it's it's low level service service jobs and I think you know for most people that's going to be their future indefinitely. Well, so with that in mind, what what is and before we move on to speaking a little bit more about uh, Hong Kong's relationship with China because we haven't really touched on that and that's yeah. <laughs> that's looming that's looming. Sure. So um, just to wrap up this little section, what is the Hong yeah. Kong? economic elite's position what is the tycoon's position i've read just for ex- example that yeah. someone like jimmy lai who's a media magnate uh is said yeah, to be well, the mastermind yellow, yeah. is it yeah and it's said to be like one of the masterminds of the protests yeah. he's pretty sorry yeah. he's pro yellow oh, he's, I mean, yeah, he's, yeah. He's, yeah he's often yeah um 
So, yeah, I mean, look, there's a bit of a split here. I mean, Jimmy Lai is a, is a, is a rich guy and, uh, um, you know, and he matters, obviously, in terms of the, the, the yellow shirt side of things, um, both through his, his, you know, his publications and what he says. But, um, you know, the big tycoons, as in the, the property developer guys, the, the people who run the, the, the telecommunications companies, uh, and, you know, the casinos in Macau, I mean, people like, you know, I mean, Pansy Ho, I don't know if you saw her, uh, the representation she was making to the UN, you know, very much pro-establishment, mm-hmm. pro-Beijing and so on. Um, someone like Lee Ka-shing has been, I mean, he's an interesting one because, as I mentioned before, he is he is accorded almost automatic reverence here uh, and sort of seen as being emblematic of what can what is possible if you work hard enough and you're smart enough and, and so on. Um, but he, you know, I mean, he's sort of been disconnecting from both the mainland and Hong Kong in terms of his investment portfolio for a long time. And is now, I think, facing, you know, or he's being shunned by, by Beijing for that. Um, there's been a couple of instances, um, you know, that have suggested that's the case both recently and last year. Um, and so, you know, but I mean, he, he um, made... You know, uh, interventions in 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 the form of newspaper uh, adverts that were kind of you know you could have read them one way or another. The protests sort of protesters saw them as being supportive. It was kind of a bit ambiguous, um, but he he did come out to be fair and 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 say, well, you know, I think you know maybe we need to cut them a little bit of slack and so on, um, which is probably a pretty smart move actually, because ironically, um, you know, both. Beijing claim, you know, uh, you know, may, uh, complaining about Li Kaxing and uh, or, or shunning him in, in a couple of instances, and um, and uh, and and this and his his own efforts in doing that, he's probably actually uh, once again bolstered his support from the protesters. So, you know, that they would just be, oh, well, look, he's 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 a guy who's a big boss and he's in it for us. So, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that that's fascinating. Uh, one last point, I guess, on the on the protesters, uh, this sentiment of localism, a kind of Hong Konger yeah. chauvinism. Uh, it's a Hong Kong nationalism. Yeah, yeah it's a it's a, a form of Hong Kong nationalism. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's uh, how how long has that been around? Has that increased? Uh, and to what extent does that drive the protests? Oh, look, my, a lot of my Hong Kong friends would, you know, they, they sort of like to downplay it, but I think it's extremely real and I think it's been here for a long time and it, and it's derived from what I was talking a bit about before relative to surroundings, you know, Hong Kong did well um, and there was a sort of cockiness and, and smugness that came along with that, both popularly, so, um, you know, within the, the population generally, but also, I mean, in the bureaucratic class, you know, I mean, you if you... Listen to look at the performances of, say, someone like uh, Carrie Lam or some of the other government officials. I mean, you know, there is a sort of oh, you know, up until once again, up until recently, I think three last three months has been a bit of a uh, an eye opening corrective in that respect. But um, you know, th- there is a certain uh, cockiness and, and smugness there um, that, at least for a couple of decades, has <laughs> probably been undeserved, and I would argue it's been undeserved for, mm. for a lot longer. Um, but but the local, you know, the localism thing. I mean, it's it's extremely real. You know, Hong Kongers, um, you know, I think ten years or so ago might have said, "Well, you know, yeah, I'm both Chinese and a Hong Konger." Although a lot of them maybe wouldn't have said that. But now, overwhelmingly, you know, a lot of the 
uh, Hong Kong people I know will say, I'm, you know, I'm a Hong Konger. They don't identify at all with the mainland. Um, and maybe it's got something to do with, you know, the way in which the mainland has has gone, especially post 2014 with with Xi Jinping and, and how that how the how that story has unfolded. Um, but certainly, it's way more common now for people to, you know, they'll say that you know, oh yeah, I'm ethnically Chinese, but uh, I'm I'm a Hong Konger. Yeah, so Dang. they see themselves as something and it, and, and it's interesting because that's provoked a, an opposite reaction amongst mainlanders i mean in just in preparation sure. for this i was hearing and reading certain media which was more sympathetic sympathetic to, to to mainland china i guess uh, mm-hmm. and would sort of dismiss the civil rights and political demands of the protesters as a sort of middle class affectation um something that is done by rich privileged hong kongers and actually which dismisses you know china's progress china's e- economic um yeah and, and well I'd rather let's say put it this way and actually it's the way that you seem to have suggested that the mainland uses the economic against the political um whereas hong kong kind of t- tends to use the political against the economic if you can put it that yeah. way yeah well yeah yeah i mean look look i think to be fair i mean this is going to sound brutal but and i'm sure my girlfriend and my hong kong friends might go nuts if i said look a lot of hong kongers don't really know much about the mainland um you know i mean some of them will have family there a few of them will make trips there some of them will go maybe to parts of shenzhen to go shopping or for massage or whatever they do but realistically in terms of understanding you know the material progress in in the mainland i often don't think they see it or have seen it or want to see it um you know uh, it's not to say that uh, i mean look china obviously has huge problems as in some you know it's a highly uneven story of development of course but um you know in terms of say somewhere like Shenzhen, I mean, parts of it are you know, very neat and orderly and modern and they function quite well uh, in comparison to Hong Kong. I mean, that sort of recognition just would never be uh, made here by most people, I would, I would think. I mean, they would much prefer to, you know, Hong Kongers uh, look to Japan, for example, and they look towards the US as well. Um, you know, a lot of Hong Kongers go to Japan, you know, a couple of times a year for shopping and holidays. They see that as the sort of pinnacle of civilization in some ways. Um, they're, they're not looking to, to the mainland. Now, on the mainland side of things, I think, you know, I, I think mainlanders are genuinely perplexed. I mean, you know, it's fair enough to understand, um, you know, to suggest that a lot of these guys don't recognise what's gone on in the mainland, uh, certainly the last 20 or so years. But, um, you know, a lot of mainlanders must come here completely perplexed. I mean, looking at... Certainly, if you're coming from parts of, you know, Shenzhen or Shanghai or, you know, even, I guess, from Beijing, I mean, I'm sure a lot of them would be wondering what is so amazing about the place and why Hong Kong is so proud of it. Uh, It's so protective of um, whatever the identity aspect is that uh, Uh often gets raised. Um, Because, you know, to be honest, I mean, the quality of infrastructure and, uh, I mean, setting the the trains and the the airport aside, the quality of infrastructure is 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 poor. Um, the the sort of built environment is often quite confronting. The the scenes you see in terms of old people having to eke out rather miserable existences in tiny, you know, or, or the reality of tiny flats and so on. It's 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 not what a lot of mainlanders experience. So.
Interesting. And I mean, obviously, we've mentioned the xenophobia from the part of Hong Kongers versus mainlanders. I wanted to yeah. maybe flip the question around. What do you think the impact of these protests might be on mainland China? I mean, is there any solidarity that we've seen from from mainland Chinese? Um, and what effect uh, I mean, could this have on maybe, uh, you know, other maybe border areas, for example, in which the Chinese state is vulnerable, like Xinjiang? Was that a possibility? I mean, it, I just wanted to maybe if, if you could uh, prognosticate a little bit. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's not it's not an area of strength for me. I mean, you know, look, there have been some people in the mainland who have been uh, prominently showing support for what's going on in Hong Kong. Um, but, you know, I mean, one of the interesting things, I think, looking at the other way around, so 2014, um, you know, I was at a forum where there were lots of protesters uh, who were talking about, you know, what their concerns were, what they wanted, um, and, and it was quite hostile towards the mainland, obviously. And, and I sort of, you know, suggested in the Q and A session that maybe you know you should consider um, looking to forge solidarity with people in the mainland who are facing similar situations in terms of elites, you know, uh, monopolising opportunities, uh, the uneven application of rules, rising inequality. Um, and so on and so forth. And honestly, people just went bananas. <laughs> I mean, they, they sort of said, oh, you know, they're the, I mean, not they're the enemy, but that was the sort of uh, overwhelming, uh, you know, uh, suggestion from the audience. No, we mm. can't, you know. So the idea of forging solidarity, at least from Hong Kong with people in the mainland, is just not there. Um, although there have been a few uh, figures in the in the mainland who have been, you know, showing solidarity with Hong Kongers uh, in the current crisis. So, I mean, I guess I would suggest that the consequences for China domestically of a clampdown, of sending in the tanks, might be less grave, um, question mark, I guess. And, How and so? <laughs> How so? I mean, it might be very grave. Well, so, sorry, I just, I just yeah. mean that because of the lack of solidarity from mainland Chinese towards Hong Kongers, that yeah. a, a clampdown might not you know, breed a sort of uh, that much sympathy um, amongst mainlanders. I don't know. I mean, I get that. That's that's. Oh, uh, I mean, on that front, look, uh, I, look, I honestly can't speak to that. But I mean, I, I think that uh, clearly the calculation that that Beijing is making is that you know, look, I mean, what can you? It's look, it's a tough, tough period for them anyway. They're fighting trade wars and slowing growth in the country and, and so on and so forth, and the idea of rolling the tanks across and into Hong Kong and look that 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 doesn't have a positive uh, positive ending in, in no uh, you know it's just not possible so, so what is the CCP's uh, play here I mean what is what is it I, I don't honestly I don't think they have one I don't think they know what their play is I could be wrong but I honestly I think hopeful I think they are thinking that hopefully people will you know tire out and uh, I mean I think before the university semester started and school went back the expectation was that you know, maybe they'll tire out, go back to school and it'll all stop. And that hasn't happened. Um, uh, but, you know, I don't, I can't see what the play would be. I think, you know, their best, their best hope is that people do eventually tire, things simmer down again. But, you know, I mean, the government has shown itself, even if that were to happen, I mean, which I'm not convinced is going to happen actually, uh, because this hardened, uh, core seem to be intent every weekend on firing up again and 
and um, being recognised and the government has shown a complete inability to respond in any meaningful way other than acquiescing to the uh, withdrawal of the extradition bill. Um, you know, I, I don't know, it's just, it's, I think it's probably unlikely that you're going to see a, a significant uh, back down. But say, for example, if you did see some simmering down, I could imagine the government introducing, you know, their next little fantastic idea uh, or bring one back from the back burner that will upset people again. I mean, yeah. this is, you know, this is the current situation is another version of what's happened multiple times over the last, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I guess the, the and as you've hinted at already, I mean, the, the, the mobilizations that are happening now and have been going on for four months have built on the experiences, the the failures, and and the organizations that were created uh, at the time of the umbrella, uh, the, the umbrella rebellion in in 2014. So, I guess it, that would seem to suggest that yeah, that any even if this were to sort of die off, uh, despite yeah. the amazing staying power that these protests have had, that uh, that they might emerge again in in, a, in perhaps in a slightly different shape in in a little ways down the road. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's an interesting thing. There has been some, there has obviously clearly been from a strategic point of view, um, and also I think in terms of politicization, there has been a learning process, depending on how you, you know, I mean, not, not always entirely positive, uh, a learning process that has gone on. And of course, the protesters from 2014 um, have gotten older, um, you know, nothing's really changed. If, it, or if anything, in terms of the material conditions and, and, and situation facing many people, it's, it's gotten worse. Um, so, you know, I can understand um, this, you know, that, that, that why this hardening has taken place and why things are being escalated. Um, but it's, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult situation. I mean, in terms of the sort of ideas and the opportunities for forging more cohesive uh, a more cohesive movement that could actually realize positive uh, change in Hong Kong. You know, it's just, it just hasn't happened yet. So. That's fascinating. So let's move on to the final section as a way of rounding this out to draw out some of the maybe more global implications um, and then try to put a bow on this all. So firstly, um, there's bills passing in the US Congress uh, making this, their special relationship with Hong Kong or rather the, the Hong Kong special relationship with the US uh, renewable yeah. each year, um, the stopping of uh, sending repressive weaponry to the Hong Kong police. So obviously, I mean, this is the US uh, as part of its trade war with China trying to yeah. uh, trying to yeah. trying to back the protests uh, in some way. So how do you see that playing out? As you said, the Hong Kong protests themselves have some of that, you know, they have, you can see this in the photos in the media, waving American flags. You said Trump yeah. on a tank, which is a, a scary thought. Um, how does Especially that play out? Especially for someone who is a draft dodger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it's, I guess, look, I'd, I'd always be asking, how does it play out for, for who, right? I mean, um, the, the, Look, I mean, if you look at the top end of town, I think they've been quietly putting in place contingency measures. So, um, you know, I mean, the FT yesterday, I think, was talking about, you know, a lot of people who store gold here are now moving it to Singapore. Um, I'm sure there have been people, you know, there were people moving lots of cash out of the place um, sort of certainly four or five weeks ago. Um, and, you know, Hong Kong's status as 
a financial center, a financial hub that enjoyed significant and real autonomy from China, I think it's been permanently compromised, to be honest. Mm. Um, and so what the US is doing now, you know, it's obviously it's potentially important leverage in the trade war and could feed into this. But I actually think that, you know, the way in which the, the city is seen as a, uh, as a place autonomous from, from China and important uh, to capital in that sense, uh, has permanently been changed, and I mean I don't have any good hard data. There, there are some, there is some good stuff in the FT on the gold side of things, but you know I, I mean just anecdotally, lots of people were setting up foreign bank accounts all over the place and shifting cash out um, four or five weeks ago. And, and I think that's um, driven less by worry about a specific scenario in mind playing out than more just about uncertainty. Uh, just right. because you're not sure if the protesters will win and what happens then, if China will come in and send in the tanks and what happens then. I guess it's more just about uncertainty that there are many different scenarios that could play out and none of them look especially positive, at least from the perspective of international capital. Yeah, I, look, I think it's it's all down in that respect. Um, it's all downhill. Um, very few positive uh, outcomes in this scenario. And I suspect the outcome is, is uh, you know... I mean, there probably is one outcome. It's just a matter of how how quickly it happens. You know, I mean, and, and by that I mean, you know, does one country two systems dissolve very very quickly, uh, or does it you know keep ebbing on until twenty forty seven? And uh, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, the, that's the interesting thing here. I think, ironically, once again, it sounds a bit brutal, but ironically, if the protesters had had have done less, they would have been experiencing less interference from china i mean realistically on a day-to-day basis you know hong kongers don't experience uh, interference from china um now there, there's a lot of drama and, and worry about what the extradition might bill might have meant in that respect but that's now been withdrawn um but you know in terms of everyday impact realistically if things were to simmer down now it, it probably wouldn't be um that dramatic however um, the, the more that things sort of uh, escalate, uh, the more there is, you know, a reason for, for China, for, for Beijing to, um, you know, start to, to rein things in one way or another, either through the proxy of the Hong Kong government and the police force here, um, which have shown, you know, one, which was once held up as the, you know, the best police force in Asia and, and actually within the population here, you know, once it, a bit like Lee Kashing, also accorded automatic reverence, seen as a great employment uh, opportunity, and so on and so forth, was seen as clean. And so they've shown themselves to be, you know, uh, ham fisted and, and worse, actually, in terms of uh, handling the situation. And, and you know, one th- I mean, that's one thing we haven't really spoken about. You know, we've got, suddenly gone to this position where so many Hong Kongers are now deeply suspicious of the police um, and, and don't really trust them. Um, I mean, you know, the divisions that have emerged have been incredible. You've had divisions within families here, divisions within uh, social media groups, um, you know, stories of uh, families where someone works in the police force and another person doesn't and they don't want to speak to each other anymore. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty incredible what, what is happening here. Um, that's remarkable. And social fabric. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I just saw today that uh, one of Kerry Lam's top advisors uh, said that, you know, these protesters won't stop at the five demands uh, with the implication being that it's useless to concede on any of these demands because they won't stop there. Um, so they seem to be 
hardening their position. Um, yeah, well, look, I mean, the thing the thing with the government, uh, yeah, uh, for, for a long time, the government here was one also, look, look not just in Hong Kong, but also out by, uh, you know, people overseas or whatever else was seen, held in high regard. And I mentioned the, the World Bank rankings and so on before in terms of doing business and so on. But realistically, I mean, as I said in this op-ed that I hopefully have out on Saturday, Friday or Saturday, you know, it's laissez-faire at the top end of town and it's colonial bureaucracy for the rest. So if you look at, um, you know, uh, even basic things like, you know, renewing car license, a car registration or a business license or, so, I mean, it's, it's like 1960s Britain, basically, you know, um, and it's it's not efficient at all. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of issues in terms of, um, you know, how government operates and, and, you know, the hospitals, for example, often people talk about the, the quality of the Hong Kong health system. Well, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time in going through public hospitals in Hong Kong. And I mean, some of them are extremely confronting, you know, places in terms of, you know, plaster falling off the walls, um, people on beds in corridors, you know, over overcrowding. Um, delays in terms of access to basic stuff like MRI, MRI scans for quite serious concerns and so on. Right, so and yet that, it does that really, contrasts, really well. Yeah, that contrasts rather with the kind of consumerist sheen of the image of Hong Kong. It, it contrasts with the consumerist sheen of Hong Kong. It contrasts with many rankings of the medical system and, and other systems here. It contrasts also with how people will uh, you know, describe or how Hong Kongers will describe Hong Kong. Um, so it's 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 quite unfortunate the whole the whole combination really. All right, so in the last couple of minutes that we have, it might be nice to make some international comparisons if we can if we can if we can manage that. Um, so firstly, one of the key uh, aspects of these protests is their decentralized um, forms of organization, and you know, the, yeah. as the slogan has it, being like water, and and in general yeah. that kind of distrust of organizations, a, a sort of maybe even anti politics that we've seen. Uh, in in kind of these spontaneous emergences of street protests all around the world in over the course of this decade, really, yeah. um, and and I, I, one thing that always strikes me is that you know what, what makes for their ability to draw on numbers and act as a voice for various complaints and demands is also what makes for its ephemerality, for the, its lack of coherence, for, even for its proneness to cooptation by by powerful forces, whether they be domestic or, or foreign. And, you know, in, in, yeah. in this sense, I think, you know, it, what strikes me is that it looks like Brazil's June days. It looks like certain aspects of the Arab Spring. It looks like Gezi Park in Turkey, um, various true. forms of yeah. Occupy, Velvet Revolutions even, uh, which in many cases supported by, by the U.S., supported by the CIA yeah. and so on. Um, yeah. So in that regard, it still it still seems to be very much stuck in, in that mode. Yeah, I mean, uh, in terms the, the the movement seems to be stuck in that mode, or the, the overall. Well, story is the, firstly, just the movements themselves of uh, rejecting organizations, rejecting leaders, rejecting uh, formal forms yeah. of representation yeah. of organization it is, building. It is, it is, it is stuck in that mode. You know, I mean, and um, and I think to be able to move forward, uh, you know, you really do have to rally around. Uh, things that would have a, a meaningful impact on Hong Kongers' lives, and they just haven't done that yet. You know, they're, um, they are drawing attention to... I'm not saying that the concerns over, uh, you know, how trials are operated in the mainland or mainland governance 
uh, are invalid. I think they are completely valid. Um, but, you know, realistically, in terms of improving the everyday lives of Hong Kongers, then they're certainly not where I'd be looking. I mean, one of the interesting things about, um, you know, the umbrella movement um, in 2014, I thought was, you know, it, it was also known as Occupy Central. And, and despite the fact that they appropriated the Occupy moniker, um, it was not remotely built around the narrative of inequality and the 90, you know, the 99% versus the 1%. And this was happening in a place that was, you know, just suffering under massive levels of inequality. Um, you know, th that was not part of the, the story at all. So, the, you know, people latched on to um, the moniker, but without understanding the sort of uh, meaning behind it for groups in, you know, for Occupy Wall Street and or, or groups like, you know, elsewhere like Podemos or whatever. If you, you know, the other thing you see still, I mean, and I try to, I see this, I see students doing this sometimes at, at university and it infuriates me. You know, they, they're using Pep, was it Pepper the Frog, the, the alt-right yeah. mascot. You know, I mean, he's being used broadly as a sort of, you know, positive mascot for the movement. And I don't think they have any understanding of what he's yeah. actually associated with. So he's, it's, it's, you know, quite I, I also heard that they were uh, sharing lots of images from Winter on Fire, the the really controversial right. documentary okay. about Ukraine, which just yeah. completely whitewashes the neo-Nazis' role in those protests in that rebellion. Yeah, so I, I've actually heard quite a few mentions of Winter on Fire by the Hong Kong protesters in the last, uh, or supporters of the of the protesters in the in the last couple of weeks. So not surprising. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I guess you know, you can say, well, it's just a decontextualized symbol, and it doesn't really matter. But you know, yeah. I think a, a more yeah. self conscious movement would be maybe aware of these of these references that they're drawing upon. Yeah, um, I mean, look, I think the best the best hope is that there is learning going on. Look, it's not. I don't want to paint protesters here and and people who are supporting the protesters, and they they're often different sorts of groups, I guess. Um, as completely reactionary. I don't think that's accurate, but um, that element is real. And I think, you know, the scary thing is that it could go in that direction and build quite quickly rather than going in a more progressive uh, direction built around redistribution and attending to material inequalities and quite dire uh, conditions faced by, uh, addressing quite dire conditions faced by many Hong Kongers are the product of this, you know, um, super uh, sort of alignment between a political and economic elite here. Yeah, those ambiguities and contradictions come through uh, very strongly in what you're saying. So just as a final point, and as a way of tying this to what we like to discuss is the politics of the end of the end of history, how yeah. much is Hong Kong, and, and by extension maybe these protests, emblematic of a certain contemporary condition and maybe the question there is not even necessarily today's contemporary condition but a contemporary condition that applies maybe to the 2000s more than it does to uh, today in the west at least um for me that that looks like sort of an island of civil liberties but deprived of popular sovereignty um which is driven and sustained by international finance capital but with gaping inequality at home i mean that's what seems to me the the, the picture of of hong kong yeah. and one which i would identify with London of the 2000s, for that matter, you know. Um, yeah, do, do you well, see that? I mean, I don't. Ruben Gonzalez and I wrote a piece on this for. Uh, we had a piece on this in the Huffington Post and in and a bigger piece in, on globalization, basically making that exact point. And I would see it completely in those in those terms. Um, you know, this is a case of um, 
you know, the, the erosion of, of social mobility. You do have, uh, you know, forms of, uh, you know, uh, the, the ability to participate in a limited sense here in the political process, but in, in any meaningful, pro, uh, you know, uh, sense, you don't have any control over um, decisions that, that really impact your, your life, I guess, uh, or, your, or the lives of many people. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's tied to hollowing out processes. It's tied to economic transformation associated with globalization, the rise of gig economy, the rise of finance capital, um, the power that those guys have to sort of threaten, um, you know, um, moving at the first sight of uh, uh, any redistributive demands or, you know, efforts by a government to sort of, um, you know, maybe rein them in or tax and so on and so forth. It's, it's definitely tied up to that. Um, but, you know, the unfortunate thing here is that it's not recognised in that sense. And, of course, here is not alone in that respect. I, I think you see that in the US. Um, you see it in the UK. Um, you see it in many, many places. And, um, you know, it's sort of like people retreat back into the nation-state ideas of identity and, and, and nationalism and so forth rather than thinking about forms of solidarity that transcend um, you know, uh, nation state boundaries and, and so forth. That, that's easier for people to imagine. Um, and, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Excellent stuff. Thank you so much, Toby. That was fascinating. All right, very interesting to talk to Toby there and get a bit of a, more of a sense of what's going on on the ground as well as the sort of forces shaping this kind of quite confusing protest, as we said there just at the introduction. Uh, Phil, what are your first thoughts? So I suppose two things leapt out of me. The first thing which was most striking was the fact that um, Hong Kong seems to be um, going through the same kind of... Um, I suppose, uh, I don't know what the word would be, the same kind of upheaval associated with a particular economic squeeze of a particular um, demographic, um, downwardly mobile, um, over-educated youth effectively, um, and who are shut out of both uh, the labor market to various degrees and also out of the property market. And that seems to be a pattern which repeats across much political discontent throughout the developed world. So, I suppose it's striking that um, China, particularly, or at least a very developed part of China, is um, experiencing patterns which you see in other parts of the developed world, well, in the West, basically. So that's the first thing that struck me. The second thing I thought is that all these, um, the different kind of aspects of the phenomenon, um, the kind of the more um, the more conservative groups, the ambivalence of the labor unions, the fact, or even kind of caution and. Um, withdrawal of the labor unions, the fact that Hong Kongers don't think of themselves as having a society, um, all of that speaks to me, and, all, and also the British flags and the colonial era nostalgia. All of that speaks to me of a um, of a political of political immaturity. I think um, that there has been in, it's been kind of a rapid, compressed political development in tremendously concentrated um, and intense circumstances always under the specter of um, Beijing potentially crushing the protesters with tremendous brutality and force. Um, and so for that, I think it's unsurprising that you get so many um, contradictory phenomena and that you, you don't have perhaps um, the kind of political organization and coherence that you might expect from a more mature 
reflective and experienced um, opposition or protest movement. Um, that's you know that's a, the way I would read um, all those things. And despite all that, I think at the end of the day, I guess two things I would think would have to be stressed. First is the sheer resilience of the protesters, the continuous character of these enormous and violent and persistent protests. Um, and also, as Toby mentioned in the interview, the deep suspicion and hostility now to the forces of law and order and to the security forces in Hong Kong. And I think that in itself, I think, is an important moment uh, in uh, political, in the development of political consciousness, irrespective of um, the limitations on the demands of the protesters and how they understand their Hong Kong and its relationship with China. I guess one of the questions to to raise is whether this is part of a, I guess, a wider wave of depoliticization of of the middle class. To what what it you know what is the class character of the protesters and of their demands and of their in this case, particularly of their relationship to um, to the core to, to Beijing, and I think it's it's interesting because you you kind of look around Western Europe and you can see a whole um, load of phenomena which clearly fall into um, aspects of of you you might say the politicization of the middle class, uh, various aspects of left populism, but the the probably well maybe one of the closest parallels in in european politics the gilets jaunes which obviously we've talked about previously who in terms of just the the resilience as as phil said i don't you know that that word is often misused the the stability or just the the, the bloody-mindedness and the the long-term um um i guess demands or or long-term uh uh vision of of, of the protesters in terms of how long they're prepared to to, to stay out or how frequently they're prepared to get out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like <clears throat> that clearly is not an aspect of the politicization of the middle class. That is that is the peripheral France, left behind France. So, yeah, I think that's it was a really interesting interview and definitely raised some questions about, for, for me at least, about the, the, the class basis of um, of the protests and how to to interpret that in the in the I guess in the Chinese context. Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said to Toby during the interview, it seemed to me very much like the Hong Kong protesters are very much stuck in this sort of 2013 mode of inchoate protests of drawn largely from the downwardly mobile middle class, uh, putting forward a sort of variety of demands. I mean, actually, if their actual stated demands are fairly, fairly circumscribed, right, fairly limited, they've got their five main demands which mainly concern civil liberties uh, and rather than even, you know, necessarily popular sovereignty, but there seems to be a kind of a broader push behind that. But it's, again, it's that it's a very general sense of, we want to take charge. We, these people don't represent us, um, but without a particular vision of, um, of what kind of society they want to have other than one in which uh, they ha- they have more control, but again, it's it's the, even the political vision seems to be relatively restricted. And again, there really isn't any economic vision. So which, it's larger. So do, do you think they're, uh... It's larger. It's more continuous. I think also it's um, and it's also I think uh, so proportionally larger. I mean, than other kinds of um, protests, such as the ones you mentioned in the interview, Alex, such as Gezi Park or maybe the Occupy. Well, I think it's, it's also city, because it's in a city state as well. I think there's a certain geography there that's relevant to highlight. No, I think absolutely the context is important, but by that token, I think also the context of um, 2018, 2019 is also important. That gives also a different political character, 
but then that happens within that time frame in a way that these earlier um, protest movements didn't have. So, I mean, you know, while it is kind of obviously um, uneven sociologically, politically, in terms of the character, it's limited in terms of the character of demands, I think it's a tremendous breakthrough as well. The fact that it's um, demolished the um, self-satisfaction of the elite of the kind of Hong Kong city-state, as well as a tremendous kind of concern to the elite in Beijing. And that in itself, I think, is tremendously important in the long run in the region and also in the world. Yeah, I think, I think two, 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 two points on this really quickly. One, don't underestimate the resilience of the self-satisfaction of elites and how quickly it can bounce back. Um, but a more serious point, I guess, it, it might actually more, more of a question. So, I mean, are these, are these protests basically, are they kind of end of history protests rather than end of end of history protests stuck in that 2013 um, No, they're mode. definitely, they're, they're end of end of history protests. I mean, it, that's, it's a worthwhile question, but I, maybe it also at the same time is the wrong one just because, yeah, if, <laughs> you know, I mean. That's, that's very diplomatically put. I mean, I'm, it's a good question, but also it's a, how can you have a wrong question? <laughs> That's a good question. But also bullshit. No, what I mean to get what I mean to get it what I mean to get at is that if you analyze and you place Hong Kong alongside the rest of the developed world, then yes, then it's an end of the end of history one. If you put it more in the orbit of China and see it as part of China, then the question is much more problematic because China doesn't fit onto that same time scale that we regularly discuss the end of history Mm. and the end of history on. And actually, you know, maybe we should even speak a little bit more about that relationship. Something that I drew out in the conversation with Toby was precisely this, the way in which the Hong Kongers, in a, in a kind of almost chauvinistic sort of sense, uh, certainly with certain smugness about them being Hong Kongers, uh, advance civil liberties demands above all and are, you know, are, are fairly unconvinced by China's arguments about economic development. Whereas the Chinese respond, and I think this isn't only the CCP, but mainland Chinese, uh, mainland Chinese nationalists, certainly, respond that we're undertaking this, which is the standard China line, which is we are undertaking this huge economic development. This is what really matters. This is what gives people a better life uh, and not your you know, frivolous civil, liber- civil liberties. Uh, and so their retort is always one based on economic, e- well, economic questions of raised standard of living against the the political one which seems which they portray as uh, the concerns of a privileged elite effect of course but they would i mean so what? of course they would of course they would but i think it's an important does it, I, that's not to well that's not to downplay the importance of either either the political or the economic side um but uh but it's interesting that 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 conflict has emerged precisely along those lines uh, and in well, that sense, uh, we could almost we could almost and i think i, I might have even said this to toby we could almost see the, the Hong Konger sort of protest as a protest almost of the end of history, um, concerned with civil liberties, but more or less just being left alone in your own uh, individual consumer mm. style, um, and not really being. No, I just don't. I just don't buy that. I don't think it's um, spoiled middle class kids. Um, it's simply too. It's been too persistent. They've confronted um, a scale of police repression, which is. Um, comparable to you know places like France at the moment, it's been the scale in terms of the numbers which have been persistently involved is too large. So I don't think it's um, out of place or out of time. Now you know I mean should, perhaps they don't understand 
the character of their own problems. And so to that degree, they're lacking in the kinds of um, political debates and reflections and political organizations that would make them understand the problems of Hong Kong society and economy and so on. But I mean, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's a kind of a, a hangover from a different period. It's very much of the um, of the current era, I think. I mean, I don't mean to say that it's a hangover from the from the other period, but just in terms of trying to understand the the character of it, until economic demands around inequality or housing or whatever are put forward by the protesters, it's very effectively until there's a stronger left presence there, it's kind of hard to see uh, hard to see it as anything other than the way that I described it, which isn't to say necessarily. No, I just I I disagree. Particular to the conditions of Hong Kong. But again, it, I think what was interesting also what came out from what Toby told us is, and also understanding a little bit about the 2014 umbrella protests, is that th- these have these have been actually successive waves and that there has been a, a process of uh, learning, organization building and so on from each previous protest. And so it, this is hardly the end of it, uh, of the matter, even if they do um, peter out, you know, as many of these things often do. Um, but of course, it, that there's still the possibility really hanging over us, hanging over them of a brutal crackdown um, or some quite dramatic events kind of coming about and, and, and shifting things onto a t- completely different plane. I think the marker, the marker of um, political progress for Hong Kong is not so much how far they connect up to um, underlying economic issues. I think the, the willingness to, um, the willingness to, uh, protest and defense civil liberties, the suspicion of the um, political structures in Hong Kong, however, limited their critique of um, the democratic critique of Hong Kong's government might be. I think um, the real barrier to that development, I think, is the snootiness of Hong Kong, Hong Kongers towards the mainland, which um, which Toby mentioned. I think the real barrier is the only way that Hong Kong's future can be assured in terms of the freedoms that Hong Kongers wish to defend. It can only be assured in with political transformation in China itself. And that requires building uh, links with the mainland, organ, you know, which is obviously a very different, much more difficult thing to do, precisely because the mainland is more authoritarian, more backwards, and lacking in the kinds of um, traditions of civil, of greater opportunity for um, political participation and civic life that Hong Kong enjoys. So I think that's the main barrier. I don't think the um, connecting to the, econo- I mean, certainly no doubt the economic problems of Hong Kong need to be resolved, but I think the real political barrier is relations with the mainland. Yeah. And I think that's where the the protesters have um, probably relatively um, smaller aspirations <clears throat> to try to to uh, build a, a larger movement and effect a change in in on the mainland, which of course is an extremely difficult if challenge to set. But it's so I think it it you know putting in that context shows the the difficulties in terms of the the sorts of political changes that they would would want to to see in order to to have their um, demands realised. You know, it depends on much on a much wider struggle, which is very difficult for them to influence. 
Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we should uh, actually leave it there. We'll try to return to this uh, in the yeah. coming months, depending on how things uh, things things carry on there in, in Hong Kong. But no doubt uh, there'll be there'll be something to comment on because it doesn't just end like that. I think. Um, Anyway, so uh, we'll be back with more of these international discussions. If you've not listened to Alpha Bunga Bunga before, uh, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. It's at BungaCast in all those places. And if you do like what we're doing, check out our paid shows on Patreon. They come out twice a month, and we have some more uh, in-depth discussions there. It's uh, patreon.com slash BungaCast. That's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.